Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. My guest is Jesse Green, whose book is titled Shy, The Alarming Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers, and it's by Mary Rogers and Jesse Green. Jesse Green is the chief theater critic for the New York Times, and before that was with New York Magazine, and we will talk about that and about criticism because I do some theater criticism on the air here at KPFA. I want to talk first, of course, about Shy. Now, Mary Rogers was the daughter of Richard Rogers, of Rogers and Hammerstein and Rogers of Hart, and Oklahoma, and Pal Joey, and Sound of Music, and South Pacific, etc. She had one big hit, Once Upon a Mattress, which helped create the career of Carol Burnett. She also wrote a young adult novel called Freaky Friday, which has had several incarnations. In the epilogue, you talk about how this book came to be written. But what was your first impression when you met her? And how did it feel when she approached you to write this book? I met her under journalistic circumstances. I was writing a profile of her son, another composer in the musical theater, a part of the uh, dynasty, you might say, the Rogers dynasty. Uh, his name's Adam Gettle. He was, at the time, working on a new show called The Light in the Piazza, which eventually came to Broadway. But this was while it was being worked on in Seattle. And uh, I had interviewed him a number of times, uh, very good interviews. And I thought, well, you know, I've heard a lot about this, this mother of his. Uh, so why don't I give her a call and see if she would agree to talk to me for the profile? And boy, did she. All I can say is I have never had the subject of an interview whom I felt more like I had to censor. She and her husband, Hank, welcomed me to their home and were, as I described in that article, reflexively transparent. They just couldn't not be. And And as I got to know them a little better after that article came out, I came to understand that for Mary, at any rate, this was a necessary adaptation to a an upbringing that was based on basically lies and secrecy and repression. So, you know, to me, you couldn't be more interesting than that, how you turn that kind of an upbringing into the stuff of great dialogue. I was just thrilled to get to know her. Of course, when she came to me to ask if I would work with her on her memoirs, which she had tried very hard to write herself and was not happy about, I instantly said yes, because I knew what a great character she would be in a book as she was in life. Jason Grah, the performer, uh, I texted him and said I'd be talking to you. He was reading the book, and he, I forgot the exact words he texted, but 
apparently she was just a fabulous person to be around. Oh, she was. I mean, I, I suppose there are people who w- will also tell you stories of uh, being, you know, cut by her or, or offended by some comment she made. She was not the kind of person to censor herself, as I said, and sometimes regretted the uh, that reflexive knee-jerk uh, outspokenness of hers. But it sure m- made for a fun time. And, you know, I spent, in working on the book, I spent several years just sitting with her for hours a day talking and laughing our heads off. It's uh, and, I, and that's the main thing I wanted to reproduce was exactly what you just said, Richard, the feeling that people who knew her had of having a blast, the kind of blast... You, you know, you, you could imagine from movies you used to see about show business, but rarely experienced in actual show business. When she invites you into her house, what does she just start talking about? I mean, I'm not just talking here. It's like in a normal conversation, if you were just having coffee with her, would she suddenly start talking about her father, about Sondheim, things like that? Not exactly. She was much more engaged in whatever was happening at that very moment in the culture. So she would be talking about the play she saw the previous night. She'd be talking about the concert at Carnegie Hall she'd been to that weekend. She'd be talking about politics, but with a particular angle, a way of thinking and speaking, and uh, a kind of incredibly privileged, in the good sense, uh, perspective from having been very much in the middle of the culture for so many years, despite being, to many people, somewhat anonymous. Nevertheless, it, you know, as you read the book, and as, as she told me the stories that became the book, you know, my, my jaw just kept dropping. Was there anyone she didn't know who didn't hit on her or didn't collaborate with her or didn't, you know, make a, make a bad deal with her about a contract or in some way come into her sphere? Pretty much for 50 years, there was no one who didn't. She would not necessarily spill that stuff immediately to you. That wasn't her current interest, but in the service of working on the book, of course, I would come to her with, you know, prompts and ideas and things that I wanted to learn about and uh, themes to discuss. And of course, then she would go off in in that specific direction and, you know, give all the goods on whoever it might be from Oscar Hammerstein to Lorenz Hart, to her parents, to her collaborators. Before we get into some of the details, uh, a couple of quick questions. Now, she died in 2014, which means she missed the rise of Donald Trump. But on the other hand, she lived in New York all those years. Did she ever talk about any contact with him over those years? Do you recall? I don't remember her mentioning having met him, but I certainly remember her despising him. I mean, she was very much an Upper West Side liberal. And he was not yet uh, running for president, but he was well known uh, and certainly had a uh, career. Yes. So there's no question about that. I remember that at one point I was moved to give her as a gift a, a kind of squeeze doll of George W. Bush, which she appreciated very much. So to to get her anger out with. So she, you know, uh, one didn't need to have met Donald Trump to have a full panoply of uh, hatred for him. She certainly filled that bill. From my perspective, just having grown up in New York, I also know people who were ripped off by him. So, oh. <laughs> She was ripped off by a much higher quality of person. She died in 2014, and the interviews with her began 2013, 2012, 
it took eight years to get the book out. And I was curious whether it was just because it took so much time and you have a rather other big other gig, but it also came out after people like Sondheim died because I don't think he would have appreciated his um, presence in that book. Well, I spoke to Sondheim about writing the book. Uh, I had interviewed him many times and saw him at theatrical events and things like that. And he knew I was writing it. And I, from time to time, would call him and ask him about this or that. Mostly he didn't remember. Or, you know, when I provided enough background, then he would remember something. So uh, it had nothing to do with his dying, that the book took so long, or waiting for him to die. Uh, Far from it. The reason it took so long after uh, Mary died in uh, the summer of 2014 is first because I was, well, you know, I was grieving. By that point, we were very close. I don't mean in the same way, perhaps, that, you know, family would be close, but I was spending, I'd spent hundreds and hundreds of hours with her and uh, discussing the most intimate and in some cases very painful things. Uh, both not just one-sided. I mean, the book isn't about me, so you don't hear anything about what I spoke to her about, but um, we we were friends, and it was very painful for me when she died and also left me with kind of a big dilemma, which was how do I finish this monster of a book with her not there? Uh, As I began to sort that through, as you say, I did have another job, and then suddenly I had a much bigger job, And I just didn't have as much time as I would have liked until I finally took a leave of absence from my job as a critic to finish the book. But yeah, it it took a very long time. And it was pure coincidence that Sondheim died before the book came out. He, He did know about a lot of the content, though. The book itself is kind of unusual. And I want to thank you for making sure that the uh, footnotes are in the same size <laughs> type as the... They, they weren't supposed to be footnotes originally. The concept for the book arose, first of all, out of a need, which was that I wanted to create for readers the experience of sitting with Mary and hearing her talk the way she talks. I really wanted that to be an uninterrupted pleasure. And in order to do that, I couldn't insert into her voice things she would never say. She didn't say, my father... Richard Rogers, the great American composer, she said, daddy, you know, so I had to let her say daddy and mummy and refer to all her friends by their first names and assume that you understood what she was talking about. So I had to figure out how I could do that while still, you know, allowing the reader to understand where they were. So the idea came up from that and also from Mary's wish that it have a conversational feel that there would be another voice in the book. Originally, It was going to be on the side of the page or maybe kind of like the Talmud kind of buried within the page. We tried various things. uh, Some of them weren't feasible technologically or financially. And we ended up with these notes. But as you say, they're a pretty equal part of the book and they had to be in the same font. So they were. And in there you allowed yourself, your feelings about her and everything else allowed to come through. And I got the feeling that whatever stiffness you might have felt in those segments, she kind of took over and made sure you weren't stiff either, that you were throwing in jokes. It almost feels as if she was on some plane channeling, or not channeling, (laughs) editing you, if that makes sense. No, it does. And in fact, both voices in the book contain 
elements of both of us. We would, you know, tell stories. She would tell me stories. I would react to them. I might make some joke about something she said, and she would say, oh, use that. Or she might say, put that in your voice. And we didn't even yet have a format. We didn't know how it was actually going to all come together. But I will say that she had done a book with her mother, with whom she was, you know, not very close insofar as her mother was this icy perfectionist who thought, you know, she was just a total disaster as a daughter. And in in that book they wrote together, they each gave their responses to social questions of the time, which was the 1970s, and it was done in different colors of ink. So that was another idea that helped prompt the format of this book. But I also had a problem once I realized, you know, once Mary died, how was I going to tell the whole story if I weren't there? So I had to have some way of having my voice emerge, which it does more and more as the book goes on. And and finally, at the end, comes forward and tells the end of the story. When I do interviews like this one, I never know whether to go for things that are in the book that people who haven't read it or won't read it will know, or to kind of go around the book and ask stuff that's not in the book. And I'm going to do a little of both here. She mentioned several times about the playwright Arthur Lawrence. She calls him that little, and I can't say the third word, but you can figure out what it is. But by the end of the book, there aren't that many references to what he did to make her so angry at him. What do you think it was? Well, there are very few things that Mary was unwilling to have in the book. And you 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 speak of, you know, talking around the things that are not in the book. You won't find much that's not in the book. I would say 98% of what she knew about her life is in the book. However, uh she did finally draw the line at a couple things and uh, told me about them, and I agreed with them, and I thought it was still going to be a pretty good bargain, and this is one of them. However, there are so many things that Arthur did that made him a a persona non grata to almost everyone who ever met him. Uh, He had a, a large collection of friends whom he seems to have spent his life alienating one by one until he barely had any left, among them Sondheim too. But She does discuss how she stood by for many years watching him lay into her friends and cut them to ribbons with nasty criticism that he considered to be just a form of honesty while she did nothing for fear of becoming the next victim of that. And she came to have a feeling of uh, complicity. And she calls herself at one point she said she would have been a, a very good Vichy Swaz, meaning, <laughs> meaning someone who was a collaborator at Vichy. So uh, it was partly just watching how he hurt people so badly. He also had some dealings uh, with her family uh, that, uh, you know, in, on projects and in contracts that were not resolved satisfactorily. And yes, there were other things too, but uh, at that point, I'm sworn to silence. Steve Sondheim plays a role in this book, uh, particularly with regard to jealousy from her first husband, because she spent so much time with him and was closer with him. But then he semi-disappears from the book. Did she distance herself, or did she just simply choose not to discuss how her husband Hank related to him, uh, or how her family did? 
did she kind of move away from him and not see him as often then? Basically, everyone who knew her was jealous of her and envious of her relationship with Steve Sondheim, uh, as how could you not be? She and Steve were extremely close and everybody admired him as the great talent of the time. So it's not surprising. But in the case of her first husband, there was also the matter that she seemed to have a more intimate relationship with Sondheim and to prefer uh, being with him than she sometimes did to being uh, a wife and mother. This is complicated by the fact that that first husband, Jerry Beatty, was gay, as was Sondheim. Um, but uh, so it's all very complex. But in between her marriages, there is a description of this kind of astonishing moment. And when she first told me about it, I nearly had to, you know, pick myself off the floor where she and Sondheim agreed to try a one year trial marriage, uh, which did not work for obvious reasons. Uh, but they did remain close for the rest of their lives. It's just that there was no more tension or very little tension in the relationship. There was an occasional blow up. But no, the reason he doesn't occur quite so much in the final third of the book is because they were each settled in their lives and, you know, extremely busy with their careers. Uh, naturally, when they were young, they met when they were, when she was 13 and he was 14. And when they struggled together, writing songs together and discussing theater together as kids and going to Westport Playhouse at the same time as apprentices, naturally during those times, he plays a, a much larger role. But no, I, you know, right up until the end, they were close. And at the memorial service for Mary, Sondheim got up and played a song that he had written based on a melody they had worked on together when they were kids. There are several obscure Sondheim songs mentioned in Shy. That's one of them. And I guess it's probably not going to be found anywhere. There are also two songs he wrote for a show called Hotspot. Are those songs extant somewhere? The authorship of the songs that he participated in for uh, Hotspot is a, a little hard to parse. He came in theoretically to do additional lyrics, but did some of the additional music as well. So some of the songs seem to be by both Mary and Steve, and she tried to remember that you know he wrote the bridge or she wrote the intro. But as with their earlier songs together, it, it was very hard to tell in some cases because they were both they both had their fingers in it. However, there is a song from Hotspot. It's available on the cast album and also on various cabaret concert albums since then and an, uh, an album of Mary's music called Hey Love that has such incredible verbal wit to it that you know it has to be a Sondheim lyric. And uh, there's some others that sound a little bit like some of the music he was writing at the same time or a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Yeah, I looked up to see whether I could find a copy of Hotspot. And nope, it was a recording from a preview, and it's a underground recording. You can get this CD of Hey Love, which was this show put together of music by Mary or songs largely by Mary, but that included some she wrote with Steve Sondheim. And it has Faith Prince singing that number from Hotspot quite wonderfully. One quick question there. Sondheim's final show did have a uh, read-through once, and that's the first act of the Bunuel. Is that dead? Will that ever see the light of day? Or do you know? I don't think it will. I don't know for sure, but I don't 
I don't think it will. I, I think it never got to a finished form or a form that could be performed. That said, the example of the Rodgers and Hammerstein and the Rodgers and Hart catalog tells us that nothing by a popular composer is ever truly dead. And somebody someday may find a way to get the rights and put something together. So, you know, I, I say that with that caveat, but he was pretty clear that he, you know, when something wasn't ready or done, he wasn't going to have it performed. I guess this is kind of a philosophical question because it must have been going through your mind a lot because it kind of pops up in the book, which is when you're working on a memoir like this or a history, trying to discern the difference between memory and reality must be extremely difficult. Yes, and I was very doubtful at the beginning. The stories she told were so detailed and in some cases you know, outrageous and almost too good that I I felt sure that she must have embroidered them or combined them with, you know, things people had told her or, or misremembered, you know, when that happened or how that happened. But as I set about to check things that she told me, I found not only that almost all of it was very accurate, but that the more uh, outre the memory was, the more accurate it was. So there's a story in the book about her converting to Catholicism. And that was another one of those jaw-dropping moments when she laid that one on me. Um, and I suppose her family knew, but I, I, certainly it wasn't generally known. It was, you know, partly done as a rebuke to her upbringing and partly done because she desperately wanted to get married as just as quickly as she could to get out from under the thumbs of her parents. So she, you know, found a convenient Catholic guy at the Westport uh, Playhouse and uh, got engaged to him and he he needed her to convert. So she converted. Then, then of course, she didn't marry him. But when she told me this, I was just flabbergasted. And I looked into it and I was able to do some pretty deep digging and find that, you know, the characters that she mentioned in the story, the priest who taught her the catechism. All these people really existed in the time and place where she said they did. And it all checked out. So as time went along, I came to trust her more and more. Nevertheless, you know, trust but verify. And to the extent that I could, I did. However, you know, I do say that, you know, as a caveat, this is not a book of history. It's it's Mary's life uh, as she told it and as I retell it. So it has a couple filters in the way. That said, I, you know, haven't yet heard much that's wrong about it from people who would know. She also had a very active sex life. You know, there there were two husbands, but there was a long-term relationship, I believe. I got lost in it. There were so many. I mean, she could have been a gay man in the 70s <laughs> for, for all of the sex that she talked about. Was that another jaw-dropping moment? Not merely that she was up front, but that there was so much of it. It was, but it shouldn't have been. It betrayed a prejudice of mine that I think was the kind of prejudice that led her to want to talk about it. She wanted people to know that she was a young woman. This was Most of this was between the two marriages, after she divorced Jerry Beatty and before she met and married Hank Gettle. She did have a very active series of, let's say, dating. I mean, I don't know how many of them became sexual affairs. A lot of them did. She 
didn't see any reason why women should hide that from each other. She felt that she had been deprived the benefit of women talking honestly about their lives as artists, mothers, and lovers, uh, certainly deprived of that by her own mother, who could barely speak of such things. And she wasn't going to participate in that and, and also was not ashamed of it. She, she doesn't think she behaved very well in some of those circumstances. But the mistake wasn't trying. The mistake was trying in the wrong way or picking the wrong kind of person. But I think you're dead on when you say she had, in many ways, the life of a gay man in the 70s. And I, I think it was that same feeling of liberation that informed her behavior during that time as informed the lives of many gay men of that time. And by the way, of course, she had affairs with quite a number of gay men to the point where her father finally said to her, well, why don't you just go all the way and marry Truman Capote? <laughs> You're listening to an interview with Jesse Green, who is the co-author with Mary Rogers of Shy, the alarmingly outspoken memoirs of Mary Rogers, uh, and is also the New York Times theater critic. I'm Richard Walensky on Book Waves. I'm Richard Walensky on the Book Waves, Art Waves Hour. A couple of more questions, and I want to talk about criticism, if you don't mind. Um, Sure. Oh, great. Um, where was I? Just, just a second. Um, she's very hard on herself, and she's hard on her parents, yet at the same time, she does say that her parents were really horrible on the small stuff, but great on the big stuff. And usually, from what I found, it's the other way around. Did that surprise you to hear about that? It did surprise me, and she backed it up by, you know, being really open about the times that she royally screwed up, or her husband did, or they did together, and, you know, she would go to her father or her parents together and, you know, explain this is the situation. They would ask a few questions, and they put down the check to cover it. Uh, her husband, Hank, was involved in an opera venture with Sarah Caldwell of Boston, that, you know, basically tanked on his credit card and they owed, which, you know, at the time was a fortune, $100,000, more like a million dollars today. And uh, Richard Rogers covered it when he saw there was no other way to handle the problem. So, yeah, she had good reason to feel that they handled the big things pretty well. They rescued her from a couple of monetary crises and a couple of emotional crises as well. However, what she says is that it still doesn't balance because even in a life as adventurous as hers, there were more small things than big things. And on the small things, they were quite bad. Getting back to being married to a gay man or having affairs with gay men and being in love with Sondheim for so many years, she has an enormous amount of sympathy for gay men stuck in the closet in the 1940s and 1950s her view toward her ex-husband is pretty extraordinary. Well, once she was freed from the marriage and from the abuse that went with it, she slowly began to recover and began to see what she had been prohibited from seeing. I mean, that's the problem with the closet, isn't it? She wasn't allowed the chance to be sympathetic to him while they were married because she was never told. He never told her what was going on. But when she understood what was going on and they were no longer able to do much harm to each other. I think she became very sympathetic in the same way that she tried to be sympathetic to herself 
for the ways in which she had hidden and kept herself from being her true self for a long time. And yes, they found a way to be very good parents to those three children from that marriage. And she incorporated them into the lives of her children from her second marriage as well, and uh, remained friendly until the end of his life. I think that's a, a, a sign of a pretty great lady. Well, her story about AIDS and Larry Kramer, the part that shocked me wasn't the event, but that when he spoke to her and said, you're Mary Rogers, you can do something, she took it to heart. She didn't get defensive. And it seems that one of her strong points, and maybe the strong point of nearly everyone I know who has it, is the ability to be criticized and to recognize the honesty and to change. That's extraordinary. Yes. Yes. You know, Richard, I think that's really the core of it. And it's bigger than just the ability to, without too much defensiveness here, criticism and change, although that's an enormous thing that I think a lot of men aren't able to do, a lot of people in general, but particularly men. But it also applies in a larger way, not just to Larry's, you know, kind of (laughs) typical vituperation, which scared, you know, half the people who ever met him when they would yell at, at them. But with her, it jolted her into action and they became very close friends afterward. But also in a larger sense, her whole life was about seeing where she was, pushing hard to make the life she wanted. And when things didn't work, being unafraid to move on to the next thing. She always said that she had several arrows in her quiver and she wasn't afraid to use them. So when musical theater, you know, after a really good shot and a big hit and then a, you know, a moderately big hit off Broadway with The Mad Show and then some big disaster uh, with the Judy Holiday show, and then a bunch of things that fell apart because of bad contracts. She just said, okay, I have something else to do, and that's when she started writing. And she made a big success there as well. And when that petered out for her, she moved on to philanthropy and you know, became the, the uh, chairman of the board of Juilliard for many years. So there's this, this ability to take in reality and change as a result of what you see and are told about yourself that I find extremely admirable. And I, to be honest, wish I had more of myself. I think we all do. One final fast question about this, and then I'm going to switch gears. She makes mention that Rogers began losing his talent, which meant just being able to pour stuff out instantly sometime in the 50s, which is why you know, Sound of Music does not have the same quality musically as some of the earlier shows and his later shows, even more so, though he was still Richard Rogers. Just curious, could that be what happened to Sondheim after Sunday in the Park? Or do you think he kept it to the end? Well, I would certainly put it later than Sunday in the Park, because I'm a fan of uh, passion, which few people are. Um, But I do think there... I don't want to say it's inevitable. Uh, Sondheim used to talk about it as, you know, your your hands actually start to fall in a certain way on the keyboard. And he would, you know, deliberately write in new key signatures to try to avoid just playing the same chords that he always played before. You know, Sondheim, I think, did have a little of that. I definitely hear it in late Rogers, although he was still writing exquisite melody you know, certainly in Do Do I Hear a Waltz and into the 60s, but he'd begun to become 
a little bit rhythmically sclerotic, what Mary calls the dreaded umchuck. You know, you do hear that in a, if you look at late Irving Berlin or really any of those people. The only person I haven't heard it in is John Kander, who is in his mid-90s and is writing beautiful music even now. And, you know, of course, Verdi. But there's something about that gift that although it lasts a long time compared to some other arts, it does not last forever. And Rogers, long before it was gone, became paranoid that it would go. And a lot of his uh, bad behavior and certainly a lot of his drinking seems to have been predicated on that fear. When I say Rogers there, I mean Richard Rogers. (laughs) Well, in Sondheim's case, we're looking at how much output did he put out in the last 30 years of his life? You know, or last, certainly last 20, there's only one play. Yes. Well, I mean, we all wanted more from him, as we do from all of the greats. Uh, and, and maybe they, you know, it just becomes harder and harder for psychological as well as actual uh, spiritual reasons. Jesse Green, I want to talk a little about criticism here and your work at the New York Times. The first thing I noticed when I began reading your reviews as opposed to Brantley or before that Frank Rich, but I noticed that you put yourself, the I word, into a lot of your reviews when others don't, and that must be a very conscious decision on your part. Well, I I certainly feel free to do it when it makes sense to do it. I'm very keen that people always remain aware that I am not some lordly figure who has the answers to all the critical questions. I'm just reporting on my own response. I think we're in a time when we have to, as they say, decenter certain voices, including my own. And I, I want people to know when they read what I'm writing that this is just me. You may have a very different response. However, there's a technical issue involved. And to write the kinds of pieces that I like to write, it becomes a lot simpler to do certain things if you're able to refer back to that first person pronoun. And I I feel like the avoidance of it was always kind of a, you know, a false shibboleth. And I admire those critics who never used it if they were able to get around the lack of it and still say important things. But I, if you read, I'm not referring to Ben or Frank, of course, who were great writers, but if you read some of the you know, supposedly impersonal criticism of the 40s and 50s, it doesn't have much content. And I was just not going to be doing that. I do three-minute sort of mini-reviews, and they're somewhere between puff pieces and mini-reviews for KPFA. And I have a problem sometimes because sometimes my opinion, like, for instance, a show now at Berkeley Rep called Goddess, And since these are only three minutes that are going to be on my show or the morning show, Goddess I hated, and yet the audience loves it. And trying to find a balance between saying, my audience will probably love it, but I hate it. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? That is the question of criticism. What is the value of criticism when it's just, as I say, a report of one person's response? The value, as I learned it from reading great critics as I was growing up, is to learn the bent of their minds so that you can agree or disagree based on your knowledge of their minds. And you can also learn how to think about things that you don't spend as much time thinking about as they do. So my approach in general, 
whether I like something or I don't like something, is to try to understand what did the authors want to do and how well did they do it and was it worth doing? I really try to take, even with something that, you know, feels to me like a botch, I try to understand what could it have been aiming for and why was it not working for me? That's one of the reasons the first person sometimes has to come in because it could be a very worthy thing to be doing, just not one that is of great interest to me. So, uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm not going to report too much on, oh, the audience gave it 10 minutes of standing ovations. I don't really care about that. But I do care that some people are genuinely moved by works of art that other people are left cold by. That has always been the case. And you and I have both been on both sides of that. You know, I spoke a few years back with John Lahr, and he was talking about the difference between a review and a criticism as if they're so far apart from one another. It sounds like you don't think they are. Well, I understand what he means by that distinction, and I definitely try to place myself in between. Uh, and that, you know, it's a little tricky when you have a thousand to twelve hundred words, sometimes fourteen hundred to do it in. And only, you know, overnight sometimes, but more typically two days. It's really, you know, tough work. The the work isn't so much the writing, although writing is difficult. But what makes writing difficult is thinking. And getting your thinking straight is the hard part. But that that's my commitment to myself is to write something that is more than just, you know, you know, hey, fellas, pop the champagne cork. She's back in town. Well, imagine doing that in 450 words, which is where... I come in, it's really, really tough. What I try to do is focus on what the either the director or the playwright is looking at as the theme of the piece. And that way, it mm -hmm. kind of gives an idea of what you're seeing. So I, I break it down into what happens when you first walk in the theater and the curtain comes up, and then what are the themes. And I usually keep my own personal opinion or criticism or whatever down toward the almost like the last paragraph because what Laura said is each of us have our own opinions and they don't really relate to anybody else unless you know who the person is. I disagree to the extent that I grew up reading say Pauline Kael on movies and I, you know I knew that there were things that she liked that I didn't and there were things that she liked that I did. And that was, you could triangulate from that. And I wanted to know as much as possible what her thoughts were, how her mind worked in thinking about the movie she was covering. And that helped me figure out how I would think about it. Plus, you know, you also always want to be entertaining and giving examples of good writing. I think there's room for all kinds of reviews and criticism and something in between. They all do they all do something useful in the culture. And I, what I would only ask for is more, more, more. The other thing that's something that you and I have both faced, and it's a reason why reviews of criticism is hard, it's because about 80% of what we see is kind of meh. And you talk <laughs> about that in interview in American theater. You talk about that, that as a friend of mine, C.S., said when I asked him to join me in doing reviews, he said, well, what do you say the other than, yeah, it's okay. But as I say... I mean, but you got to write... Uh, yes, you have to write it anyway, but, you know, it can be met and still be attempting something. And thinking about what it's attempting 
even if it fails at it, or even if it does a mad job of it, it's still a valuable enterprise. Otherwise, you're right. I mean, why would you bother with, with most of what you see? I, I really do find that even in the dull, the only things that to me really make me angry, you know, to watch, and I feel like they have nothing to offer me are things that were clearly cynical projects developed by corporations or merely to make money without any thought to whether they have any reasonable function in society. And and then, you know, but th- those things are pretty easy to write about too, because then you get to bring out all your worst verbs. That brings us to Broadway today, because so much of it seems to fall into that category. When I hear about or see musicals in which the most important part is the branding, say a pretty woman or Beetlejuice, and, you know, somebody put up money because, hey, we'll get the, the rubes to go see that. And that seems to be where Broadway has gone. That is certainly a part of where Broadway is now. And, uh, you know, you can say that those shows are necessary to the ecology of Broadway because they keep a lot of people employed while more interesting and more valuable work doesn't last as long and and therefore requires, you know, the success of other work in order for it to have a, a way of being produced. If you know how to pick and if you know what your taste is, there's always other things on Broadway. There's always a couple smaller shows or original works and certainly plenty of difficult and powerful plays, especially recently, if you are willing to look beyond what you've looked at before. I think, you know, actually, I'm very excited about the future of theater, both Broadway and, and you know, off-Broadway and in the regions, because a whole new world of people is finally getting to tell their stories and in their own ways. And, uh, you know, yeah, a lot of it's going to be not great, but some of it's going to be great and all of it's going to feel new. And I think that's something to be excited about. Well, getting back to that show I didn't like, Goddess, it's an all-black cast. And a friend of mine went and she said the audience was almost completely black. And to me, if that's what Goddess is doing, bravo to Goddess, getting people to theater. I agree. And, you know, I'm, that's, that's why we need more critics uh, of various backgrounds because maybe a particular work isn't one that I can understand as well as someone else. Uh, Not that I believe in assigning critics to uh, review things based on the congruity of their personal identifiers with that of the characters or the authors of a production. But I think if you have a lot of people from different backgrounds talking about and writing about theater, it's got to be healthy for everyone and particularly for the new works that need criticism. They need to be criticized as well as praised. And in order to do that intelligently, you need a lot of different voices. Well, you started out writing in the New York Times about AIDS and being one of the only out gay writers there. And you mentioned in that interview that it was very difficult, even in a place like the New York Times, to be gay and out and be comfortable. This was in the uh, late 80s, I suppose. And uh, I wasn't on staff. I was freelance. So already, you know, that was a, several strikes against me, you know, and I was I was no uh, breakthrough writer there. There were people doing much bolder and, uh, you know, more difficult work who really had themselves on the line as staffers there than I did. But I certainly got some of it. And uh, I, I, you know, I observed 
the kind of sclerotic culture that resisted change and uh, was somehow willing, as so many of us are, strangely, to default to cruelty and to default to thoughtlessness. I've never really understood that, but I got a lot of it. Uh, it tended to be in the form of words that you aren't allowed to use. Or, you know, if I was writing about someone who was trans, that uh, they wouldn't allow me to use the pronouns that even then they wanted to use. And um, getting a lot of negative feedback about what I wrote about, even though they depended on me to write about it, it, it was a bad time. But by the time I returned to the New York Times uh, in the mid in about 1992 or three or four or something like that there had been a sea change and now certainly you you might almost say that uh being gay like any other identity marker at the times is pretty well celebrated with you know affinity groups and special coverage of all kinds and for for me it's now a non-issue even though i recognize that for lots of people in the world it still is but uh i think you know as, as in the world at large, AIDS had a lot to do with that. It, at least for a time, it forced people to stop being monsters. New York Times has a new uh, editor-in-chief. Has that affected you in any way? Not yet. <laughs> he's just started, and uh, we're, we, he's been around in, a, in the second position for quite a long time, so none of us expects dramatic uh, reshufflings or anything like that. I think I think we can look forward to an intensification of focus on the goals of the paper, which in the culture department are right up my alley anyway. So I'm, I don't foresee any problems as long as I can keep doing it. What about what happened at CNN? Uh, does that bother you, scare you? Like anyone else who reads what's going on, I don't like it. I worry for the media ecology in general. I don't worry for myself. That is not the kind of thing I foresee happening at the New York Times, which, you know, after all, is a family-owned company and is not to quite the same degree subject to the vagaries of the corporate world. On the end, furthermore, has made a great success of itself in the last 10 years in a way that perhaps CNN has not. Jesse Green, one final question. Are you working on another book? Uh, will there be a collection of your reviews and criticism coming out? What's on tap? Right now, I'm taking the first vacation I've had in 10 years. There has not been a moment since I started working on Mary's book that I have not felt like I'm, when I wake up in the morning, I'm late for something. <laughs> something due, what is it? And right now, I have no reviews to write until a few weeks from now when as the season picks up. And I have no book to write, and I'm going to keep it that way for a little while. I do hope to write something else, but in a different vein. I don't think there's much of a market anymore for collections of criticism, uh, but if there is, uh, I'll be glad to entertain offers. You've been listening to an interview with Jesse Green, whose book written by Mary Rogers and Jesse Green is titled Shy, The Alarmingly Outspoken Memoirs of Mary Rogers. And of course, you can find Jesse Green's work at newyorktimes.com or in the physical newspaper if that's your choice. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website.
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.